Hey guys, it's Alana and welcome back for another episode of Seeing Other People. On today's episode, we are talking to Krista St. Germain. She is a grief expert and life coach specifically for widowed moms. She hosts the Widowed Moms podcast and has incredible insight for all of us about how to really process grief and how to date after losing somebody you love. Specifically, of course, in this case, a a partner, a husband, but also in any situation that you lose somebody, it could be after a breakup where you lose a partner that you thought you were going to have and you were going to spend the rest of your life with and you have to figure out how to get back out there. You have to figure out how to love somebody new or it could be about losing a friend and and feeling that grief and having to communicate your emotional needs to somebody. Um, This is a really important episode and obviously we never plan to lose somebody that we love. We never prepare for that. And so I think the more we can be educated about how to go about that and also how to support people in our lives if they go through that, I think the better we all are for it. So I'm going to bring Krista in. She is incredible. And thank you all for tuning into this episode. I'm super excited for you to hear it. It is Friendsgiving season and I have the perfect thing for you to bring to your Friendsgiving dinners so that you don't have to worry about, oh my God, what am I going to bring? Oh my God, I'm so busy with work or I've been going on so many dates. I haven't even thought about what I'm going to make or bring to Friendsgiving. I got you covered. Batter that matters. Those are the three words you need to know because you're going to go to ourbattermatters.com and you are going to fill up your cart with the fall collection or with any other cookies that your taste buds desire and you're going to use code seeing other people because that's going to get you 10% off and you are going to be the best guest at your Friendsgiving dinner because Batter That Matters cookies are amazing. And don't worry if you or any of the other people coming to your Friendsgiving are vegan or gluten-free, Batter That Matters also has cookies that they can eat and will love and they will literally think that you are the best person ever for thinking of them and for bringing them cookies that they can enjoy because a lot of the time they can't. So head to ourbattermatters.com. Don't forget seeing other people is the code for 10% off and also follow them on Instagram because they post amazing cookies that will make you happy when you see them in your feed at Batter That Matters. And welcome, Krista, into the episode. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. It's like this lovely rainy day where I am and rain is my favorite. So where where are you? Set the rainy day stage for everyone. I am in Wichita, Kansas, which is like right in the middle of the country um, and kind of I live in a larger city, but kind of in a more rural area. And I have this beautiful view out my picture window of a golf course. Wow. And my potted plants. And yeah. I feel more calm even just like hearing about your setting (laughs) as opposed to my apartment that I just moved into where there's just bags that need to be unpacked. And then I keep hearing like trucks honking outside. Let's trade places. Yeah, Um, right. Well, Krista, I'm really excited to have you here. Why don't you explain to the Seeing Other People family who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a life coach and I specifically work with widowed moms. So about a little over five years ago, I lost my husband and we had been on a trip and had driven separately and I had a flat tire and he was trying to change the tire on my car. And without really any warning, a driver who we later found out had both meth and alcohol in his system crashed into the back of Hugo's car and trapped him in between his car and my car. And in less than a day, like he was just gone. So my life was completely upended, um, in a, in a way that I did not see coming at all. 
And so eventually, of course, it was a progression. It didn't happen overnight, but went to therapy, figured out how to kind of function again and get to that place where I was being told how strong I was and I was back to work. But, you know, inside I wasn't feeling strong and I definitely wasn't feeling any joy. Um, And then thankfully discovered coaching and figured out that post-traumatic growth is real. We really can take any sort of trauma that happens in our life, not just the death of a spouse, but any trauma and use it to create a life that we love even more, right? To live even more aligned with our values. And so that's what I do now is I help other widows do the same. Because there's this big myth out there that after loss, you're kind of supposed to just get used to your new normal you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me because how most people use that is that they just like resign themselves to this life. That's just not at all what they really wanted, but they kind of believe the narrative that it's what they're supposed to get used to. And so, you know, they don't love life and and I just can't stand it. So, so that's yeah. the work that I do. Yeah. Well, obviously I'm, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, but I am, really, I really admire how you took that situation and turned it into something beautiful. And Thank you. you put yourself into a situation where, you know, other people aren't going to go through it, unfortunately, and you can be the person to help them get through it, which is right. really what this is all about and, and why I'm super excited to have you here. So I think a good place to start is like, if somebody loses somebody, when that happens, mm-hmm. can you walk us through the stages of grieving and what, somebody feels in from like that first moment until like however long it takes to get them to a place where they can start to start moving forward. Yeah. So I will say, first of all, that, um, you know, this is one of the things I had to learn the hard way that what we think we know about grief isn't really all that accurate. And we kind Mm -hmm. of live in a culture that's just not grief aware, grief literate. So there are as many theories about grief as there are about weight loss or like anything else. Right. So what's been most popular in our culture is the five stages of grief, but that's only one of many theories. And it's, it really wasn't even designed to be about death. It it was actually the, the, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler, who created that theory, were really studying in the beginning hospice patients who were coming to terms with their own death, not what happens when you lose someone that you love, right? And so what I would encourage people to do is just disregard everything they think they know about stages, steps, processes, anything that's linear. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to go through depression. You don't have to bargain. You don't have to be in denial. Like none of that has to happen at all. But what is very common in the beginning is like a numbness, right? Or a disbelief, a kind of not knowing what you need. So if you're trying to support someone who's had a major loss, chances are they might not know what they need. They might not be able to articulate how you can help them. And that's not to say you can't help them, but it's can be an unfair ask to say, you know, well, just tell me what you need and I'll do whatever you need because they genuinely don't know. So sometimes at least, you know, for me, it was really helpful when people just jump in and do things for me. Mm -hmm. Like one of my friends just jumped in and bought school supplies for my kids because school is about to start right? They didn't ask me. They just did it. And then the school supplies showed up at my house. A couple other of my friends just came and mowed my lawn. They didn't ask me. They just came and did it, right? Because I couldn't have said, 
at that point in time. I didn't even know what planet I was on in the early Yeah, you days. weren't thinking, oh, the lawn needs to be mowed. Oh, like no, we need like, binders and notebooks. Yeah, what even That's is a lawn? Like, yeah. yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> it's just my whole world just exploded. So I'm not really thinking about my lawn right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's just kind of being grace, graceful and knowing that that person that, you know, they're hurting, they, they don't necessarily know what they need. They probably aren't thinking as clearly as they otherwise would. And so just come up with ways that you can help them. And if, if they can articulate it, that's amazing, but don't expect them to be able to. Yeah. I, I think that is really, really good advice and something that we need to remember. I mean, both starting with the the fact that the stages of grief are not actually meant for what we think they're meant for. I mean, I know I've, I've like heard of them before and I've kind of looked into them a, a little and I'm like, but when I go through something, it's like, I could feel this one second and that the next second, like exactly. it doesn't, it's not linear. Like you said, it doesn't go like that. And so then you, we start to feel like something's wrong with us for not following that path. And yes. Yeah. I mean, my whole thing is like, there are no dating rules. Everyone's different. Every situation is different. So, I mean, this completely is aligned with that where it, it, there is no one way to grieve. There is no one way to move on and, and move forward. Um, and then with the, the knowing or not knowing what you're, you need and, and trying to figure out what your friend needs. Yeah. I think that is so smart to just like just be proactive and do things and think about like, okay, what would I like not be thinking about right now? And obviously this is a completely different situation, but I lost my dog a few months ago and Mm, she, she was like my entire world, like truly my entire world. And the word that you said, you said it's a numbness and that's, that's exactly, exactly how I felt. And I've never gotten more texts, more DMs, more phone calls in my entire life mm-hmm. than I did when she died. And every single person was like, what can I do? Like, how can I help? And I'm, I, I couldn't even respond to them, you know, yeah. because I was just so not okay. And so I think whether it is a, like your friend or family members, like significant other partner, husband, wife, whatever it may be passing away or a breakup or some type of loss and some type of thing that's shaking up their world. Like just know that, let them know that you're there for them. Keep letting them know, but also take it into your own hands to just start doing things like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also, because I don't know about you, but I definitely wasn't taught that feelings weren't problems. (laughs) I always thought, you know, if you're feeling bad, you're supposed to do something to fix it. Or if someone else is feeling bad, you're supposed to do something to help them feel better. And so most of us kind of live in that paradigm. And so when we see someone who's hurting, our inclination is to want to try to make them feel better. But in grief, that's exactly the opposite of what we need to do, right? Because how you receive it, if somebody had said, oh, you can get another dog, right? You would have wanted to throat punch them, right? You know, and meanwhile, (laughs) they're trying to make you feel better and they're, they're doing the best that they can do. But what you really need to do is have, you know, the pain that you're feeling acknowledged and, and allowed. And so we, we, we want to notice that we want to fix it and then resist that urge, right? Just let people feel how they feel, witness it, be with it. But mm, platitudes, oh, you know, they're in a better place now. All those well-intentioned, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. 100%. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so while like in in the initial aftermath when when you are starting or like after you kind of feel your feelings, like let yourself be sad for a while and you're you start to maybe get to a point where you're like, okay, now what? 
is it like that? Like, does that happen that now what, or do you need to be like shaken out of it? Like, how does that work? And how do you get to a point where you can start to pick up the pieces of your life and, and get Mm -hmm. back on your feet? Yeah, I think it's different for every person, but speaking for myself and what I see in a lot of my clients is, you know, the the kind of early acute grief where it's like you're in a fantasy land or kind of this world where on one level you understand what has happened has actually happened, but you haven't really accepted that it's happened or it just feels like it it's a dream. And so, you know, being able to tell the story to a neutral third party or to friends that are willing to listen just an, enough to actually let it sink in that it's truly real. That, you know, there's a lot of value in that. For me, my therapist was amazing in just letting me talk about it, right? Just process mm-hmm. all that. I could, just couldn't even believe that it happened, right? Yeah. Still felt like he was on a business trip and he was just going to come home. Right. And so being able to talk about it until I had at least really sank in. And then you kind of start functioning more and more. And it depends how intense is the grief fog. For some people, grief fog is really bad, right? You can't, it feels like you have cotton candy in your brain and you just can't, everything's cloudy and fuzzy. And you, the things that used to be easy for you to remember, you don't remember and you're leaving things in strange places or you're starting things and not finishing them or you're, you know, putting your keys in the freezer, like, you know, just, (laughs) um, so sometimes we go through that. We can't read and retain, um, that requires a lot of patience. And then I think a lot of us get to that hollow robotic functioning place where we're like, okay, I'm not in the fetal position all day anymore. I'm, I'm able to meet my, my needs, my basic needs. I'm going through the motions, but the motions feel hollow and, uh, unfulfilling. Yeah. I feel like, why is it that I feel like general like hygiene is one of the hardest things to keep up. Like, like, like showering. Yeah, totally. It's so hard. Yeah. Some days it really is or eating, right? Showering, eating. Yeah. Like I, I, I mean, for me, I didn't want to eat for a long time. I my family kept, I kept buying me smoothie King cause that's all I could. Yeah you know, even do. And so, yeah, we want to be really kind and compassionate to ourselves in those early days where sometimes the, the littlest victory is huge, right? Just being able to shower or get out of bed or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So let's get into kind of getting back out there. I mean, let's, let's mentally like, or pretend fast forward in the whole process and, and when it comes to like, okay, do I start dating again? Do I want to find somebody like how, how, what's kind of going on in someone's head and what are those thoughts like? And does it come from like internally or like their external pressures to do that? How does that kind of, how does that light bulb go off or slowly dim on? Yeah. Well, again, you know, different, different, different people go through it in different ways, but yeah, sometimes, you know, people are putting pressure on you. Sometimes you, you're, you're not really that interested in dating again. And other people in your world are saying, Oh, come on, you know, I've got the perfect person. I'll hook you up. And you know, it's time for you to, to move on and, and putting that pressure on you. Other times you, you know, are looking to fill a void that you think will be filled with the relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of work with clients in this regard, which is, not that it's wrong to date for that reason. I don't believe it's it's a matter of it being right or wrong, but it's just disappointing when, mm-hmm. you know, if you think that your your happiness was because of your partner and you notice that your partner is gone and you're not happy, 
then it's a natural inclination to think that happiness exists in a partnership and that you can't be happy until you find one. And that's usually very disappointing, right? A lot of clients will come to me after they've tried that and realized, oh, wait, I think I'm missing something, right? Like the new relationship didn't solve my emotional problem. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a lot more fun to get out there and date if you realize that you have everything within you that you need to be complete and whole and happy, right? Yeah. And and the another relationship or dating isn't isn't going to solve what's happening on the inside. Yeah. But a lot of times we are trying to do that. We're trying to solve something that that we think can be solved with a relationship. Right. So if you if you kind of go through that and realize like oh this is disappointing and this isn't what I thought it was, how and and like you said like you have to realize that it's you can make yourself happy. How do you do that when your world is still totally shattered? It is not easy. Yeah. yeah, it is not easy. Um, you know, that's why in the, in the work that I do, I spend, a, you know, my program's like six months long because we got usually have a, a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, so it's not easy, but, but it is possible. And it is a matter of slowly unraveling, you know, what are your stories about relationships? What are your stories about yourself? When you understand that your emotional state is something you create with your brain, right? That you, how you think determines how you feel. Then you can start to look at those patterns that already exist and you can start to see why you're feeling how you're feeling because Mm -hmm. of what you're thinking. And then if you don't find that that's particularly useful, those patterns that exist, you can start separating out, okay, which patterns are working for me and do I want to keep and which thoughts keep showing up in my brain that are actually holding me back from how I want to feel that I don't want to listen to anymore. Yeah. Right. And I want to rewrite. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to imagine going, going through all of this and it's obviously it's something I feel like you can't, you can't put yourself in someone else's shoes if you haven't been through it. Mm -mm. Um, so I guess one, one question I have for you is like, what are some of the biggest, like most difficult things that like people come to you with? And like, when it comes to, do I want to get back out there? Do I want to find somebody? How, how can I move forward? Like, what are some of the biggest struggles that the people you work with have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sometimes it's just being able to even imagine getting back out there again. Right. It's, it's like when you, when you identify so much as a couple and so much of your identity is wrapped up in being that person's partner and so much of your vision for the future has to do with them. When that's all taken away from you, it's actually really hard sometimes to even be able to envision a future where you're happy or envision what you want in the future because it's just so foreign. It's like being dropped off in a foreign country where you don't speak the language, right? And you have to learn actually how to start thinking about what you could potentially want or experience. And then what often happens is when you get the idea of what you might want in the future that could make you happy, and maybe that involves dating, then in comes the guilt, right? right? Then all of a sudden you're like, well, who am I to be happy? You know, when my person isn't here anymore, or what does it mean about how much I love them if I'm replacing them? Right. And then we start kind of using what we want in the future and this potential happiness as a weapon against ourselves, which is quite miserable. Yeah. So how do you navigate that guilt? Because I I think that can kind of manifest itself in a bunch of different forms. And like you said, it's like, how can I even do this? Like they're not here. What does it say about me? Like, why do I deserve to go and do this when this terrible thing happened? How do you manage it and and push through it 
or do you not? Yeah, I don't know. It's not so much of a pushing through as it is kind of just increasing your awareness of like, oh, okay, why am I feeling such guilt? Right? Because we will think the guilt is about the dating again. We will think that's what's causing the guilt. We will think the guilt is about feeling happy again, that that's what's causing the guilt. But it's never really the idea of dating again or the new relationship or the feeling happy. It's always this narrative that we have about what it means to date again, what it means to feel happy, what it means to dream again. And so if we can figure out what our brain is making it mean, and sometimes it's just one tiny little story at a time, oh, my brain is making it mean that if I'm happy again, I I wasn't a good enough partner. If I'm happy again, I didn't love them. And then I help people kind of put that story under a microscope so that they can see it, right? They can really see the optionality of it. They can see the guilt that it's creating and how that changes how they behave. And then they can see that story for what it is. And then when we get it to the place where it's literally like an object, like it's like my cup, right? Like I'm mm-hmm. holding it up. It's like my, my happiness means I wasn't a good partner. I can pick that cup up. I can put that cup down, right? And I can start to see it as optional for myself. And I can start to like poke holes in the thought. Is that really true? Is there evidence that my being happy again or dating again really doesn't have anything to do with my, you know, past self as a partner or my love for my person? And then we start, you know, like really being able to, to diffuse ourselves away from this story that we have so that we don't have to believe it anymore, And then doors of possibility open, right? And we can start to see happiness in the future differently and without the guilt. Yeah, absolutely. So once you do that and and kind of go through that and and figure all that out, how does it work with actually navigating dating? Because I, I mean, off the top of my head, like there are so many things that come into mind. Like, how do you tell somebody about this? When do you tell somebody? Do you, yeah. do you not? Like, do like, how much do you tell them? Yeah. Like, how much do you let them in to like keep your partner, your previous partner's memory alive? Like, oh my God, what the hell? Right? <laughs> yeah. I think you have to be, you have to be really clear about, um, you know, some people aren't going to be ready for it. Some people are not going to be well suited to dating someone who's lost a spouse or a partner right? They're just not going to be emotionally mature enough or emotionally secure enough. And so you're going to have to navigate that, right? And make sure that like, for me, it's not an option for me. If, if I'm dating someone, which I am now, and, and he didn't appreciate Hugo or Hugo's memory or my desire to still have stories about Hugo, pictures of him, right? That, that kind of stuff in my life, it would be a no-go. Yeah for me, right? It's like a deal breaker. And I am of the opinion that while we don't need to make it all about the experience, there's also no benefit in hiding it because it's going to come out eventually. Mm-hmm. And the sooner it comes out, the sooner we see that person's response to it, the sooner we, we, you know, can see, oh, are, are we kind of, you know, on the same page here or are they insecure? And, you know, they're competing with someone who's died. And, and the sooner yeah. that comes out, I think the better, but you know, that's just my approach. Some people <laughs> don't have that approach at all, Yeah. but then you might wait a long time before, you know, if, if you wait a long time for it to come up in conversation and then, uh, that person doesn't deal with it the way that you want to be supported, you know, then you spend a lot of time when you yeah. could have had that information sooner. I can also imagine it's something that 
you, you wouldn't be able to focus on anything else un, until you get it out there because it's just this giant weight on your shoulders. And I know like for me, even if there's something small, that's like 1%, the significance of something like this, that I want to tell somebody that I'm dating, it's like, I, I can't think about anything else your, until I do Yeah, Your it. brain is like fixated on that one thing. 100%. Yeah. So yeah. if you do tell someone and when you do, what are some kind of like green flags versus red flags to look for in their response and how they kind of, yeah, how they respond to what you're telling them? Like, how do you know if like they are kind of suited to take this on and, and to be a partner that can emotionally support you or they're not? Yeah. So, I mean, part of it, I think is just, are they emotionally secure enough in themselves to be able to let you make space in your heart for someone who's always going to be important to you. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, if you've had kids, you, you, you sometimes worry that the second child, like how could you possibly love the second child as much as you love the first one? But then the second one comes and you see, oh no, actually there's plenty of love, right? There's no limit on that. Mm-hmm. And you see how you can hold the love for the one child and then add in the second one and there's plenty of love to go around. But if you get the idea that the person that you're dating doesn't see it that way, right? That That is insecure enough that they believe they have to be your one and only yeah. and that you can't tell stories, you can't laugh, you can't have pictures and that's important to you, then that's definitely a red flag. Green flag would be, do they ask questions? Do they want to know? Are they interested in that part of your life? Mm-hmm. Right. Or are they just like trying to get you to shove it under the rug and, you know, not talk about your past at all? Yeah. Right? So what was that like for you? You know, what's your journey been like? Do, are they showing a genuine interest in even the, the ugly, sad parts of your life? That's who I want to be with. Definitely. And And if they're not, it's not like, oh, but like, maybe I can change them. Like, no, that's not the person that you want. That's not the person that's going to be right for you. And yes, it's definitely, I'm sure it's hard to get back out there and start dating again. Like it's hard the first time to find the person. And and so obviously now there's more obstacles and, and things and like, there's so much more at stake now. So it's not going to just happen on the first few dates. It's not, it's going to take a lot of time to really find that right person who can you know do that for you. What's really crazy though. I have to tell you this because I used to think that Uh-oh, I'm wrong. I, I know you're not going to believe me. I, I didn't date for several years after Hugo died. Genuinely didn't want to went out one time with a coworker, an old coworker who I didn't think it was a date. It was very clear to me <laughs> midway through dinner. It, he thought it was a date. And I just remember being madder. I was so mad. Just, I was just mad at the universe. Like, cause I didn't want to I didn't want to date again. I wanted Hugo, right? Right. Um, but by the time I finally did decide to date, I had done so much work on myself and I was really convinced that I did not need a relationship to be happy. Mm-hmm. It was just not a doubt in my mind. But I got to the place where I was like, but the, but it seems like it will be fun, right? So I'll just, I'll just try it and see what it's like. And straight out the gate, like guy number one. Wow. Right. I mean, so I'm not going to say, I I don't want anybody to feel bad if that's not what happens. I, in my experience coaching a lot of widows, that is definitely the exception and not the rule, but I do think that it can happen. Yeah. Wow. Well, go you. That's amazing. I I mean, that's great. I was really in a good place. Yes. And that's important. That's so, so, so important to 
be self-accepting and and know that you're in the place to want to do that and know that like, yes, if I find someone great, if not, I'll be okay on my own. Yeah. Yeah. And also it doesn't hurt to have a podcast about being a widow because <laughs> by the time we went out, he had already listened to my podcast. There you go. Right. And so like he kind of knew what he was getting into. And I don't think a lot of people have that going yeah. for them. I, I can relate to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. For those who don't have that, <laughs> what is like a, a good way to go about communicating this to somebody new? I think don't take it too seriously. I think if we, if we, you know, try to think that there's a right way to do it and we have to do it the right way, you know, or we worry about it, we put extra emotional weight on it. It's going to become just heavy mm-hmm. and that's unnecessary. So I think it's better to just go out with the attitude of experimenting and lightheartedness, right? And you're going to learn some things. You're going to try some things. You're going to see what works and what doesn't. And no matter what happens, you put your foot in your mouth. You, you don't say it the wish you'd say, the way you wish you'd said it. You, you know, you're still going to be kind to yourself and you're just mm-hmm. going to learn as you go. Right. And yeah. that's the, that's the point of it is sometimes I think what dating can be really useful for is even if you're not really ready for a long-term commitment, just feeling that discomfort and doing it anyway and proving to yourself that that awkwardness or that ick that you feel doesn't have to be the barrier that your brain wants to make it can be mm-hmm. so, so valuable. Actually, like, yeah, I can feel terribly uncomfortable and have a conversation with a stranger. Yeah. You know, I can advocate for what I want and, you know, say no when I mean no and deal with all of that awkwardness or worry about them having pity on me and be honest anyway. Yeah, absolutely. There is nothing worse than not feeling like your best self when it comes to going on dating apps and trying to get out on a first date or a second date or a third date and really even just putting yourself out there. And so the more we can do to stay mentally and physically healthy, of course, the better. One amazing tool to help you do that is by taking a mindset on a CBD health gummy. I'm not even kidding. These things have superhero powers. Not only do they help with anxiety, but the health gummies specifically have vitamin D in them and they have ingredients in them that encourage well-rounded wellness. And that is incredible. And that is so important when it comes to dating and getting ourselves out there and really feeling like our best selves walking into these dates. So if any of that sounds appealing to you, which it all should, and it all definitely does, head to mindsetwellness.com and obviously use the code seeing other people at checkout. That will get you 10% off and free shipping because you deserve it. What about some maybe like more specific situations where if somebody lost their partner, I had some, some listeners, uh, DM me and say like they lost somebody from suicide. So they have a Mm -hmm. lot of anxiety and like PTSD triggers related to that. So like when it, it's almost like a more dynamic thing, like how do you express that to someone where maybe it does have to be a more serious conversation and it does have to be a more like like things like this, if you say things like this, like I'm not really going to be okay. Uh, okay. So you're saying like you, if you kind of anticipate a trigger and mm-hmm. you want to help somebody understand what you find triggering, then how yeah. do you tell them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So again, I think being super honest, right. Mm-hmm. Is key, right. Because nobody's going to be able to read your mind and they're not going to be able to understand what your triggers are. Yeah. And so being upfront and honest is really helpful. Like for me, uh, you know, I stood there for about an hour and watched them do CPR on my husband in the, in the hospital. So CPR scenes, I, I can be, ha- or it's better now, but in the early days, right. If I would be watching TV and a CPR scene would come on and that happened once very early on in, in dating, uh, Todd, 
was we were watching one of those, you know, dramas on TV and a big CPR scene came and my body just went straight back there. Right. And so just being honest about, Hey, this is what happens when something like that, you know, my, my, I'm physically here in this room, but my brain just went back and my nervous system just went back to that trauma in my life. And I'm, I'm figuring out how to support myself, but you know, here's, here's how I respond when that happens. And for me, that means like I stop talking. I'm (laughs) very focused on my breathing for somebody else. It might be, they have a panic attack or, you know, whatever else it is. But I think being open and honest is, and and with no guilt, you didn't do anything wrong because you have a grief trigger, right? You didn't do anything wrong. And so, so being able to have your own back and not feeling bad about it happening will allow you to, to get the support that you want from the person. Yeah. And again, like you said, like if their reaction is going to show so much about who they are so. and it, and you want them to be somebody who's going to say like, okay, like let tell me more. Like, t- like, what do I need to know? What do you want me to do in those situations? Yes. How can I help you? How yes. can I be there for you? And yes. yeah. So that's also another thing where it's like, if they are judging you or making you feel bad about it, like then that's a big red flag there that maybe they're really not the right person for you. 100%. Yeah. And if you can't be honest with them about something like that, then definitely probably not the person for you. Exactly. So Krista, I know you do a lot about debunking some of the myths around sex and grief and sex after loss. So I don't know anything about these. If you want to get into that, I would love to hear what some of these myths are and and really why they're not true. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure there's a whole lot more myths than, you know, what come to my mind, Mm -hmm. but some of the ones that seem to be the most prevalent, right? So sometimes people will literally tell you, oh, you don't really want sex. What you want is just physical touch. So you should just get a massage, right? You should just... Where do people come up with that? (laughs) I don't know. It's the craziest thing to me that like, because you're in, you know, you're grieving that all of a sudden you don't know the difference between wanting a massage versus wanting sex. Like, what are we talking about here? So, you know, I think, I think it generally comes from people who are well-intentioned and they worry that we're not going to, you know, we're not making clear decisions or we're going to get hurt. And so that's just their way of kind of protecting us. But, you know, you're already typically pretty filled with self-doubt anyway about how you're going to get through this and how you're doing with your life and all that. So to kind of believe that lie that you don't know what you want, I just think it's just ridiculous. Um, And we have all sorts of, you know, thoughts about timelines related to loss and sex again. So you know, if you don't want sex after a certain period of time, there's something wrong with you. If you want sex before a certain period of time, there's something wrong with you. You know, you just want sex because you're trying to avoid your grief, which, and maybe you do want sex because you're trying to avoid your grief and that's totally your life and your choice, right? You, but people just have all of these rules and assumptions, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you shouldn't have sex for the first year, right? Um, There's just so many, you know, if you don't want it, there's something wrong with you. Or, um, if you do want it, you didn't love them enough. Mm -hmm. I could go on. What if you're dating somebody and like you are forming a relationship with them, but you, like you haven't had sex with anybody yet. And that like the thought of having sex with somebody new, being intimate with somebody new, 
like scares the living shit out of you. Like how is, is that a sign that you're not ready to be with somebody new? Like what does that really mean? And, and how do you finally decide like, okay, I should do it or okay, maybe I need to take a step back. Yeah. Again, it's not prescriptive. If I could write a book, I would totally write it and tell everybody exactly how to do it. I haven't met a widow yet who didn't have some sort of worry or fear, even when they really did believe they were ready. I definitely Mm -hmm. did. And so sometimes that looks like, you know, just all the fears that we ever have about ourselves and sex in general kind of tend to magnify themselves. So, you know, they're not going to want me. They're not going to think I'm beautiful that, you know, I'm going to say my other partner's name or I'm going to cry or, you know, any of these things are, are very valid worries. And I don't think it's necessarily a sign that you're not ready just because those worries appear. But I do think you should trust your gut. And if you think you're ready and then later you decide that for whatever reason you don't believe you are, then don't, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's okay to change your mind. And sometimes we kind of put a lot of pressure on ourselves that is just not helpful at all. Um, But, you know, I was very worried I would cry and I did. Yeah. You know, I actually warned him first. (laughs) I was like, listen, you know, I'm a crier in general, but you know, this is probably going to happen. And if it does, it's, it's nothing personal against you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think he was <laughs> glad for the warning. 100%. And I think that's also mm-hmm. important to say, like, it's not, it's not about you. And sometimes yeah. I think that's something that a lot of people do need to hear. Like I, I can imagine there are so many things beyond just like crying during sex that are going to happen and come up. And you do want to reassure your partner, like you're doing everything right. This, yeah. this is me and this is me yeah. dealing with what I need to deal with. Yeah. And I think the right partner will absolutely hold that space for you and yeah. will not take it personally and, and will want to take very good care of you knowing mm-hmm. that this is tender. Yeah. What about when it comes to like comparing? Obviously oh. you have <laughs> built this life with somebody. You this, this is the person you wanted to spend the rest of your life with and you plan to and now they're not there and now you're trying to find somebody else to love and to move spend this now rest of your life with them. Mm -hmm. And how do you not compare at every single step of the way? Yeah. I think you do compare at every single step of the way. And, and the magic is no longer resisting the comparison, Mm -hmm. right? Because it is, it's our human nature to compare, but we don't have to make that comparison mean anything, right? right? Just because your brain is saying, oh, well, this person doesn't do it the way my person did. Right. That doesn't mean it there's that you couldn't have a wonderful future with this new person. That doesn't mean that you're being disloyal to the other person. Mm-hmm. It's just brains doing what brains do and drawing comparisons and, you know, that's just a it's just a brain thing. It's just a human thing. So I see a lot of people really get, you know, wrapped around the axle because the comparison is there. And they make it mean that there's something wrong with them or that the relationship isn't right. Or if it were right, they wouldn't be comparing. And I just don't think any of that's true. We just compare. Yeah, we compare. And and yeah, it is okay. And I think, I mean, this could even happen like after a breakup, like when you lost the person you loved in a different way and they're they're still alive somewhere, Mm -hmm. but they're not yours anymore. And that future that you kind of painted for yourself isn't with them. And I think, yeah, it's, you're gonna find, 
things in people that are similar and that are different, but it's mm-hmm. kind of accepting like, okay, this is different. This isn't the way that they did it before that, that that other person did, but this still works for me and it's new, but it's different, but mm-hmm. I can get used to it. Yeah. And we tend to like romanticize a little bit, you know, uh, we tend to make people who have died a little more like saints than maybe we actually experienced them. <laughs> while they were alive. And so, but if we're aware of our brains, you know, predisposition to doing that, then we can kind of be a little skeptical of like, okay, I noticed that I'm kind of making everything they ever did amazing, even though really half the time, you know, it wasn't the easiest relationship and they weren't perfect and they were human. And so maybe I don't have to take that voice that is comparing so seriously either. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Do you think it's important to to remember the not perfect times? Like, of course, you want to look at like look back with rose rose colored glasses. But I know sometimes, like after a breakup, a helpful thing to do is write down the cons of the relationship mm-hmm. and the things that weren't great, so that when you are truly like missing them and you're like, I'm never going to be okay without them. Like, I was only happy because of this relationship. You can kind of put yourself back on track and, and snap back into reality of like, okay, it wasn't always perfect. Or is that maybe like a more unhealthy thing to do in this type of situation? Oh no, I actually think that's a lovely idea, right? Because it does keep you a little bit more grounded. Yeah. And, and knowing that, you know, I, if I think that what, what has to happen in order for me to be happy in the future is this romanticized, idealized, human who, who probably doesn't even exist on the planet, then that's going to be a problem. Right. Right. And really what's true is that I had this completely imperfect relationship with a messy human Mm -hmm. and there were good things about it. Right. And I was happy. And so if I can do it then, and it happened for me then, and I can do it in the future because there's lots of other messy, imperfect humans, you know, doing the best they can on the planet and not so many of the perfect idealized you know, imaginary ones. So yeah, yeah, I love that idea. Yeah. And you also learned a lot from your messy and perfect relationship with your messy and perfect oh, human that you so now take much. into your new relationship. So much, right? And so much of what you want, right? That's why I think post-traumatic growth is, is it's no joke, right? You really can take every life experience, even the trauma as a learning experience and decide, make an informed choice in the future. What do I value in my relationships, right? Mm -hmm. What is a deal breaker for me? What is an absolute priority for me? How can I, how can I use what has happened to me in my life to live even more aligned with the life that I want and the values that I have, right? So that I, so that I kind of alchemize that and, and create this experience for myself that is even more of what I want. Not, and, and it doesn't have to be, well, I'm so glad that, you know, thing happened to happened, me. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I always say like, I've had really, really terrible and, and traumatizing dating experiences in the past. And I'm not glad that they happened to me because I went through so much pain, but those happening to me made me the person I am today. And yeah. I would not be here. I would not be hosting a dating podcast, I would not be helping other people through their dating struggles if it weren't for the things that I struggled with and had to overcome and and get Mm -hmm. through. So it's like, it's weird because I'm like, yeah, like I'm like, thank God that happened to me because then now I'm who I am today. But I'm like, no, like what I, I would so wish I didn't have to go through all that. It's, It's a weird, confusing, complicated thing where I don't know, like if I could undo it, would I? Mm-hmm. because I love who I am today. I 
truly do love myself. And I don't think I did before that. I know who I am and I didn't before that. Yeah. Um, but I think you can hold both, right? Yeah. I think you can hold the not really wanting what happened to you in the past, but then also being proud of what you've done with, mm-hmm. you know, what happened to you in the past and how you've yeah. showed up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my last questions for you before we go is obviously you went through this experience and this happened to you and this is a part of your story. And I'm wondering what one of the most helpful things that maybe somebody said to you that gave you hope or made you feel like you could get through it and you would be okay. Obviously we talked about in the beginning what some of your friends did that was really helpful, like right at the start of it. But is there anything that stuck with you that somebody said that somebody showed you that made you feel like I am really going to be okay? I don't know that it was, there's a couple of things coming to mind as you ask me that question. So ironically, when the day he was killed, we were coming back from a trip that was, um, it's a camp program that I've been working with for like 20 years. One of my, um, friends in college died, a sorority sister. And it was just the most tragic thing. Four people were murdered and she was one of them. And it was just, I mean, it was literally just awful. And after that, those of us who loved her madly started this camp program for kids who are blind or visually impaired, because that was one of the things we worked together on in the sorority, but also, you know, something she very much valued. And so I had this experience where I got to see something really beautiful and amazing following something really tragic and terrible and how life-changing for, I mean, you know, now it's been over 20 years that that program had been in the world. And so I kind of had this example of not on the same level, right? Because my relationship with her was nothing like my relationship with my husband, but I had this example of what was possible after loss. And so I think there was always a part of me that knew that, that loss doesn't have to be the last word that, you know, you can go forward and you can create something beautiful if you want to. And I I just kind of knew that I would do that. And then also I think it was really, truly like a record scratch moment for me when I learned that post-traumatic growth was a thing, right? I had understood post-traumatic stress disorder and I understood that you, you know, there were different treatments available to make the triggers less triggering, right? And get back to the same quality of life. But hearing the idea that I could, I was actually allowed to take what had happened and make it what I wanted to make it, there was something really, really hopeful in that to me. Yeah. And you really did take it and and do what you could do with it. And I mean, like I said in the beginning, like it's so inspiring and beautiful what you yeah. were able to do and, and create. Thank you. And now and, and to, to, to be really people. honest though, like because it's easy to compare yourself to other people. Like that didn't come to me in the beginning, right? Like it took me a while to do my own work. I I was interested in becoming a coach, but I really did not have in mind coaching grief or widows because I thought it would be too sad. Mm -hmm. And I was just fragile enough in my own healing that I, I couldn't really imagine doing that all day. So that took a lot of my own work on myself to get to the place where it was what I wanted to do. It, it wasn't just like the natural inclination. Finally, I was like, wait a minute, why am I not helping widows? That's what I need to be doing, you know? And so it kind of eventually grew into that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of those two things. It was knowing what we had done after Heather's death and and then also um, 
just, just realizing that, yeah, trauma doesn't have to be the end of the story. Trauma can be the beginning of the next chapter and I'm still in charge of my life. I love that. And that was a perfect yeah. way to close this out. Thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for doing everything that you do and where can the seeing other people family find you? Yeah. So coachingwithkrista.com is the place that has all the links, you know, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. But yeah, that's probably the easiest way. And then my podcast is called the widowed mom podcast. It's I'm very niched. Um, but you know, if anybody's interested in learning about grief or grief theory or trauma or, you know, any of that, um, come to my podcast, check it out. Perfect. And I will link everything in the show notes and on Instagram posts and you can find Krista, check her out. Definitely check out the podcast. And yeah, thank you so, so much for being here. This has been an absolute pleasure and I definitely learned a lot and I love being able to feel that and and kind of digest everything that I just learned at the end of an episode. So this was a treat for me. Thank you. Uh, My pleasure.